1: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, talking to you from New York City on this, the 23rd day of of April, 2019. Uh, I'd like to always remind you that I write a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can sign up for that by going to miningstocks.com miningstocks.com and also like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter what is Chen buying what is Chen selling chenpix.com chen chen Picks.com, is a place to go for that of course michael oliver is with us and we'll be talking to him shortly uh, and olivermsa.com olivermsa.com is the place to go to sign up for michael's excellent work uh, I do want to thank all of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel, and encourage you to continue sending along your comments, whatever they may be, to questionsfortaylor.gmail.com. questions for at gmail.com. Questions the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And of course, we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. This week's sponsors are RN Resources, Great Bear Resources, Klondike Gold, Merrimont Resources, Novo Resources, and Strikepoint Gold. I've titled today's show, Why Do Rich Capitalists Suggest Destruction of Capitalism? Jeff Dice, Eric Coffin, and as I noted, Michael Oliver are with me today. Many billionaires, like Ray Dalio, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, among them, like to call for higher taxes on people such as themselves. But this raises a compelling question. Would they have become rich in the first place under the kind of tax system that they now advocate, would they have accumulated a critical mass of investment capital if taxes had consumed more of their profits along the way? Would they have been able to maintain sufficient capital expenditures in their respective businesses to stay dynamic? Or would revenue capital and personal wealth lost to the IRS have relegated these super achievers to the status of merely successful? Well, Jeff Deist uh, will come along with some of his thoughts on, that, on, those, uh, on those questions, and uh, Eric Coffin, uh, he's going to be with me once again. We haven't spoken to Eric in quite some time. He'll be with me during the second segment after our first commercial break. And then uh, we are privileged, as we are almost every week, to have Michael Oliver with us right now. Thanks for joining me, Michael.
3: Hi, Jay. Interesting day.
2: Uh, it is an interesting day, indeed. And, you know, with gold getting weaker again this week and the dollar getting stronger, it's it's not surprising that many gold bugs are really discouraged A long-time listener and subscriber to my newsletter named John sent an email that was fairly detailed, but for the sake of brevity, it can be boiled down to the following question, I believe. He says, why in the world would anyone want to add gold and gold shares to their portfolios when the government and bankers who have all the power and despise the competition that gold gives their fiat currency game and conspire against gold price discovery by slamming its uh, the, it's its price in the paper markets. Why would anybody even ever, you know, why would anybody ever want to own gold and gold shares? It just looks like the uh, like the rig is up, and there's no chance for us gold bucks. So, uh, what is your response to the notion that government and bankers, first of all, that they have the power to suppress the gold price? Uh,
3: well. <laughs> maybe from time to time, but you've got to realize gold is not uh, like trading cow manure or corn or something like that. It's, it's, a, it's money, okay? So therefore, governments are involved in the market. Uh, and on the other side of the balance, uh, who's complaining about government buying of gold? China, Russia, Italy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, nobody seems <laughs> to complain about that sort of intervention, quote-unquote. Uh, they're buying gold for uh, for solid reasons. Now, maybe there are governments or government agencies or banks related to central banks that are uh, trying to apply negative pressure in the gold market for, for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I remember back in the bull market from 1976, uh, gold was $103.50 at the August 1976 low, and it reached over 800 in 1980. In the middle of that bull market, late 70s, the IMF was dumping gold by the tons. Mm-hmm acting as representative for various governments. And I remember the first several dumpings of gold that they had. Uh, and this is in the cash market, obviously, but the same thing. Um, gold responded negatively, sharply. You know, $50 down days, that kind of thing. But after a while, gold said, uh, you know, so what? And ate them up so that they would have auctions and there would be no dip at all. Mm-hmm. So th- there's a reality out there, an objective reality that exists in the world, And sometimes it might be distorted by uh, folks who think they can intervene, and this includes governments and central banks,
4: Mm -hmm. uh, and intervene
3: successfully over time. Well, they Mm -hmm. may be able to get away with it at certain points in time, particularly if they might be technically appropriate times. But then when it's technically inappropriate or the fundamentals have really compressed themselves to the point where Mm -hmm. uh, they're defying reality, uh, they'll be steamrolled. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's happened many times. Uh, If central banks were always potent, we wouldn't have stock market crashes like we did in 2008. They fought it all the way down. They Mm -hmm. didn't succeed in stopping it. Um, They're potent up to a point, then they become totally impotent. Uh, And when that becomes revealed to investors that they're impotent, and, of course, we've had 10 years now of their apparent potency, Uh, so the belief structure is pretty strong on their favor. But when it comes unwound, it's a terrific wound-ripping and I mm-hmm. think that's where we are right now. Now, in the case of gold, all I can say is, uh, if they control gold and didn't want it to go up, how come we're not at eleven sixty where we were last August? Right. How come we're not ten forty five where we were late two thousand fifteen? How come gold went from thousand bucks to nineteen hundred and twenty between two thousand nine and two thousand eleven? So right. obviously they don't control things all the time. So I think that to some extent that's just cocktail conversation stuff, and I, oh. I, I dismiss it. Uh, you have to be in gold; it is a reality.
2: No, it certainly is. Well, certainly, you know, I'm remembering the early 2000s. Gold was 250 and it rose all the way. I think it had 10 years in a row it was higher, went up to 1900. Yeah. And then we've had the smackdown from 2011. Michael, you got your subscribers in uh, early 2016. We saw a nice rise up and now we've seen quite a correction. Um, do you think we're you think it's about over now?
3: I think so. Um, you know, I won't. We, we deal with numbers, so I have the you know, sort of a macro view, overarching it. But I never let that to get in the way. We've been major mm-hmm. bearish on gold. You know, back in 2011, 2012, we stayed bearish mm-hmm. till 2016. So we we can flip, okay. But right now we're bullish. Uh, so far, the break has not gotten down to levels that would cause us any concern. Now I'll admit this: it's about a percent and a half below where we reached today. But our short term stuff. Now we usually look at long term. Uh, momentum technical indicators, uh, they're all positive. But the short-term stuff obviously was negative during the decline. It had to be. Uh, sure. But it all looks aligned now such that if you get a day up in gold at this point forward, of, you know, $5 or $10, uh, all the short-term stuff that we keep is flipping up with mm-hmm. clean structure. Now, you cannot see it on a price chart. But when you look at the momentum charts, uh, they're very clear dynamics uh, with – Minor upside from current levels. Now, remember, June golds right now about twelve seventy three. The settlement today be about twelve seventy three thirty. Becomes the front month contract after April expires on Friday. Uh, if we see gold up, you know, upper twelve seventies or twelve eighty late this week, early next week. As far as I'm concerned, the turn's underway.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't seem and like too is- much to accomplish.
3: No, it's not much to accomplish, but put it this way. In early March and in late March, there were two significant lows in gold. One just above 1280, one just below 1280. Where's Mm -hmm. gold right now? 1273 on the June contract. Right. Where's the disaster? (laughs) Where's the disaster? Uh, uh, It's taken out a bunch of price lows, which no doubt causes people to pull their hair out, but it's all of, you know, half a percent or less below the lows of early March. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's see it then. You know, if, if the bears are in charge, let's knock the hell out of it. Let's go down fifty dollars. They're not doing it. They're doing it in five dollar increments. So I, I think they're wasting their ammo and I think we might be at a pivot point here. and if we see a minor upturn, uh, we'll be we'll be screaming. so
2: I suspect that uh, part of the disaster in the minds of many people is they feel left out. If they're in gold and gold shares and they've out of the equity market, the equity market continues to go up it seemingly almost every day. Uh, with just a minute and a half left here, Michael, could uh-huh. you put the equity market in perspective, the S&P okay. 500 There's specifically? Two equity
3: markets. We like the emerging markets. They're more commodity-related. They went mm-hmm. down from 2011 through 2016 big time. They went down percent-wise, while the S&P was still being inflated by central banks, as are most of the developed markets. In context, if you ran a pension fund right now, uh, you, you're barely up over the last year or so in the S&P. Yes, from the December low, it's been a nice rally, but it's redundant action. We're where mm-hmm. we were last September. We're a percent or so above where we were January a year ago. So from the point of view of accumulating wealth over a span of now a year and a quarter, you're barely up. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's had a big rally, but it's been a rally from great depths. So you're mm-hmm. getting a lot of redundant overlapping price action, which in our view, after 10, now 11 years of upside, is probably indicative, highly indicative, of topping action.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, new
3: highs in this index or that index don't impress us. Now, in emerging markets, different story. Mm-hmm. They underwent a major bear market. So uh, they're free to have a bull market now. They're fresh. Uh, mm-hmm. They're coming from in-depth flows. Uh, they weren't supported by central banks. The Chinese government didn't keep uh, Shanghai Composite from dropping from 5,200 uh-huh. to 2,400 in three and a half years. They didn't stop it. They allowed it mm-hmm. to occur. So its upturn is fresh. So totally different from the developed markets. So I think you yeah. have to sort of stand back and look at the charts, broader context.
2: Sure. Well, certainly looking at previous tops like, uh, you know, two, 2000 or, or 2000, 1987, yeah. mm-hmm. they, they took quite a while. I mean, these things are, you know, yeah. you're Really, uh, some of those tops that take quite a while, don't they, before you finally so get some usually resolution? Take
3: at least a year, and quite often there's another new high. Like October mm-hmm. of 2007, Fed generated that high deliberately. Uh, everybody acknowledged they did. They drove it from the August low of 2007 up a couple hundred points in the S&P, which back then was more significant than it is now, made a new high, and it fell apart. Mm-hmm. So uh, this one happens to be a bit broader, and tr- about a quarter wider, in terms of time spent laboring, mm-hmm. uh, and it might make a new high. In fact, we suggested a month or so ago that if you might even go up to 3000 on the S&P, which is to say a couple percent higher than the September high of last year. But it, it looks like a big widening topping pattern, and uh, we don't trust it. I think it's highly dangerous. I, I find other areas in the stock markets of the world to be that make sense, technically and fundamentally. Uh, this makes no sense. Uh, I think All right. it's
2: highly dangerous. All right. We'll have to leave it go at that. So I guess the bottom line is you don't think now is the time to jump out of gold stocks and gold and buy no, the S&P no. 500.
3: No, man. I,
2: that, I After wouldn't 11 that my yeah. worst yeah.
3: friend. Okay. Yeah.
2: okay. All right. Thanks so much, Michael, for being <laughs> okay. with us again. And uh, we'll look to do it again next week, hopefully. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Eric Coffin is going to be with me. And Eric always has some some very good insights into what's happening in the, uh, in the economic uh, sphere and uh, specifically also in the junior exploration markets. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Eric Coffin.
4: Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia.
2: Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQB is a gold exploration company focused on their wholly owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario, Canada. Recent drill results yielded an impressive 1,600 grams per ton gold over 0.7 meters near surface. GBR is fully funded to drill 300-plus holes this year. McEwen Mining is a significant
1: shareholder following a $5.7 million investment as part of a recent $10 million financing. Visit greatbearresources.ca.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Eric Coffin with me once again. It's been a while since Eric's been on the show. Uh, he had been a pretty frequent guest until recently. I don't know why, why we haven't had him on more often, but we certainly should because uh, he uh, really has a lot of great insights into the equity markets, into the markets in general, and specifically in the junior uh, exploration uh, space, especially the early exploration stocks. I think he's as good as anyone that I know. In uh, in sort of determining what the what the prospects are, uh, he has a good grasp of, of geology and geological concepts, uh, and knows everybody in Vancouver. Brent Cook tells me uh, he keeps very well uh, in touch with uh, with the people, the makers and the shakers in that little uh, in that small cap market up there. Eric, thanks for joining me again.
0: Thanks for having me, as always, Jay.
2: Yeah, it's really good to have you because uh, I I know that we're we've got the Metals Investor Forum coming up here on May twenty fourth and twenty fifth. And I should mention to my to my listeners that if you're in the Vancouver area and would like to attend, you better uh, you better sign up quickly because that uh, event usually sells out. And uh, I don't know, Eric, how how's it going this time? Is it uh, the the numbers yeah, coming in pretty good? I don't think
0: it'll be. Yeah, I don't think it'll be any different. I mean, we're we're a month away and we're already. Yeah, we're not we're not really that far from the from the RSVP level where Matt Bennett, who runs it, starts thinking about going to waiting lists. We're not we're not very far away, and we're still yeah. a month away from the from the yeah. convention. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's a, it. They usually shut the doors on some people, and so if you want to go there, if you want to get there, it's it's doesn't cost anything, but you do need to sign up because there's a there's limited space, and it just doesn't work to have more than. So many people um, coming in there and taking advantage of the goodies. Like there are, I mean, there's the goodies, the real goodies, are what you learn from the companies, uh, but they also uh, treat the people that go very, very well, I would suggest. And so, uh, well, uh, Eric, um, you know, it's been a pretty tough time, as you know, all of us know, yeah. especially if you're in the early sector, if you're really looking at the early stage exploration stocks. Uh, we're almost at that point where a lot of them are having trouble getting a bid. So, um, what are your thoughts about the about the gold share markets, the equity the markets in general? Let's say, why do you think gold is having such a tough time now?
0: I, I think it's just nobody's buying it because nobody's buying it. I guess I realize that's probably not a very useful explanation, but I just I I think we've got to see the S and P roll over to really get any momentum going here. It's just, um, retail investors in general, and it seems to be uh, largely retail, strangely, on Wall Street, mm-hmm. they simply don't see any risk. Uh, if you look at a lot of the forward-looking indicators in the U.S., they're not that cheery. Uh, I noticed that uh, Morgan Stanley's economic surprise index is as negative as it's been at any time in the last several years. Oh. But, by so the same token, the S&P is making new highs today. It seems to be, it feels very frothy. It feels very retail. Uh, a lot of sort of institutional slash pro traders, I know a lot of them are selling. Uh, uh-huh. uh, they're selling like crazy, actually. They're yeah. fuddle about how well the market's doing, and it's starting to make them really nervous. Uh, and, and me too. I mean, I just, it's, I, I don't have any problem with, Wall Street going up, I mean, yippee yahoo, but I, I just, it's disconcerting to me that I can't see many really logical reasons for it. It just feels like straight up Momo trading, and, and that rarely ends well. And, mm-hmm. and I'm afraid this may be another case where it won't end well. Uh, but it not ending well <clears throat> will help the gold market, part, partially because we'll see. If that's possible, Fed policy get even looser. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, bad months for Wall Street tend to be bad months for the uh, U.S. dollar. That'll just be another impetus, and people start looking for somewhere to hide. And there's no interest rates to be had. Uh, it makes the argument for getting a little bit of bullion as a essentially as a as a non. Uh, as a non-correlated asset. Even, even if you're not a gold bug, there's a lot of logic to buying it as a non-correlated asset when the equity markets start doing poorly.
2: Well, yeah, Danielle Martino booth who uh, underscored the point that she's not a gold bug, um, yeah. but, but she still wants to have gold. So I think that's... Uh, well, Eric,
0: uh, you know... I mean, I'm not uh, really. I mean, I'm more of a... I'm sort of a mining exploration... Guy, I've, I've been fascinated by the process, and I love following exploration stocks. I, w- I wouldn't call myself a gold bug, but I can certainly see a lot of reasons why gold should head higher. I just think it needs some sort of an impetus, and the, the one obvious thing I see out there right now is is New York rolling over. But to me, that's that's more that's most likely to be the the starting gun, if you will.
2: Yeah. Well, it certainly seems that at the late stages of these long bull markets, uh, the retail guys are the last ones in, and they're the ones that usually get burned, and it seems to me what I see in the mornings a lot of times when the markets are opening here in New York, they head, they start down sharply, and then they start mm. to come back during the day, so somebody is going out overnight selling, and then uh, who knows. But anyway, let's get to some of the stocks that you like a lot, because uh, I think... You know, at times like this, when we're seeing the, the 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 little guys get get the heck beat out of them, um, yeah. you know, my friend Chen Lin, for example, is uh, I just saw some remarks he made about Pritium. Now, Chen doesn't go in the early stage explorations like you do so much, Eric, but he likes to look at established companies and and he can't wait for them to get hit a little bit harder. He'd like to pick some up, and that's the way a lot of successful investors treat these kind of markets as an opportunity. Of course, you have to have some dry powder to take advantage of it. Uh, but uh, let's talk about one of them that I know you like a lot, and I do too. They're a sponsor of this show, Great Bear Resources. Uh, certainly some phenomenal assays in the stock. I guess we're looking at only only, 30, uh, only 38 million shares at 284 Canadian earlier today. It's about a little over $100, 110000000 million market cap, $80 million U.S., something like that. Uh, my yep. question about that, Eric, is you know yes, okay, we've seen some numbers. We don't have a resource yet, and I I think it would be premature. Uh, but they, wh- what do you think about the scale of this uh, of this target here? Is it is it has it got scale?
0: It's it's got a lot of scale actually. If you look at the sort of the main, I guess the main feature, the main structure, if you want to call it that, on their project, which is a which is basically the Dixie uh, Syncline mm-hmm. and the property name is also Dixie and Red Lake. It's a very large feature. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of these sort of D2 folds and D2 is just deformation stage two. Uh, mm-hmm. This type of folding, uh, and it's basically just an area of weakness that allows fluid flows to come up. That's what delivers the gold into the area where you're drilling, uh, those D2 folds, in combination with ultramafics, there's a couple of very large ultramafic dikes running through this thing. These things are all kind of mushed together, and that's kind of the classic combination for very high-grade gold shoots in Red Lake. Uh, the big thing that, that great, great Bear has got three things going for it, in my mind. One is very large target scale. I mean, the area that they're drilling now is tiny in relation to the whole structure. Most yeah. of this structure never seen a drill hole or anything. There's a lot of work to be done just to find these targets. And you, you, most of the time in Red Lake, you get these high grade chutes. They don't usually have a lot of strike length. They might be 50, 100 meters long. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the key to Red Lake is these things go down for, literally go down for kilometers. Right. Um, the original Red Lake mine, which is really what gave birth to Gold Corp. They've, I think they've mined down to about two and a half kilometers now and it's still wide Mm -hmm. open. Uh, So the trick is to, is to find these things, figure out how they dip, how, how the, what the, uh, what the, the, the dip is, uh, what the strike is, and what the plunge is. And those three Mm -hmm. things sort of define how it's going to go down vertically because Mm -hmm. they're small targets. You need to figure out all those three things fairly well so that you can keep hitting it as you go deep. The second thing that, that, that Great Bear has going for it is a great geological team led by Bob Singh. Bob's got a ton of Red Lake experience. He knows how these deposits work. There's a lot of the other people working on the project or ex-Gold Corp people that, that drill these things for years at the original mine, so they know exactly what they look like and how to chase them. The third thing it's got going for it is a fat bank account and a really tight share structure. Yeah. 'Cause the thing with Red Lake, these type of deposits, you need to drill a lot of holes. There's no way around it. You gotta drill tons and tons and tons of holes. And where a lot of small companies have a big problem with this deposit type is they end up diluting the hell out of themselves in order to raise money to drill the number of holes you need to do. Great Bear is in a very envious position, but they raise a lot of money at at you know, like a buck fifty at two fifty mm-hmm. to blow through. So they've got a, they, they started the drill program they're doing now with 15 million. Their drill costs are low because they're right in town. They've got a great drill company doing the drilling for them. They just expanded the current program to 60,000 meters, which is probably 100 drill holes, something like that, um, 150 probably. Even after they're done that, they have enough money sitting in their bank account to basically do that much drilling again. And they've yeah. got probably eight or nine million in the money warrant, some of which I own. Um, that'll all get exercised. So, and like you said, they've got like 35 million shares on it. So they're in a great position no, to just keep building a thing.
2: No, it's fantastic. Uh, really one of the most exciting stories I've been involved with in some time. Uh, because we don't have much time, West Haven Resources—one I have not followed—you recommended I did. I just didn't get on it quickly enough. I see the stock has come back quite a bit. Actually, it's cut in half since uh, January, the start of the year. And I'm thinking maybe this is one I should take a look at again now at these levels.
0: I, I uh, think it. I think it's a good. I think it's a good time to look at it. I mean, this is—it's an interesting project. It's only it's literally two hours from Vancouver. I've been to the park mm. a couple of times. Uh, this is an area. Uh, the, the guy that founded the company is Gren Thomas, who some of your really long-time listeners may remember as a guy that founded um, Ava Resources, sure. uh, which made a famous diamond find and, and ended up being a large producing company. Uh, he's the guy that founded that. The discoverer of the diamond pipes, of course, his daughter, Hira. She's not directly involved with West Haven, but I, I know for a fact he's a big shareholder. His son, Gareth, is the CEO They've been working in this area now called the Spencer Bridge Gold Belt for like nine years. And you gotta give these guys credit because through a really crap market they kept moving the projects forward. It was usually Gren and Gareth writing the checks, which is why Grant owns almost forty percent of the stock. He can mm. get it for free. He bought it over the years. And this it's a deceptive stock. They have ninety million shares out, but the float's actually not that large on this thing because yep. there's Gren, the family uh plethora. Fund, which is a very smart gold fund out of Holland, those that group probably owns sixty percent of it. They made a really exciting epithermal discovery late last year. Um, the best, the two best drill holes were like seventeen meters of twenty-five grams and forty-six meters of ten grams. I mean, it's an impressive property. The problem they have is there's a hundred meters of overburden. There's no outcrop. They're basically prospecting with a drill and trying to figure it out. They put out more good holes, but the last set of holes was people's expectations were so high. They didn't meet the expectations. They weren't terrible holes, but people were expecting so much. They got whacked down to 60 cents yesterday. It's back to about 70 today. Holes are drilling right now. There's two holes are drilling on a target where they think their main zone has been shifted over. If those holes hit, they probably add another four or five hundred meters of open strike length. And it's important to keep in mind that these guys have got a lot of other targets on this property. And this property, ironically, was not their primary property. The property they really want to drill is another one called Skuna. They drilled Shovelnose last year because there were so many forest fire closures. They couldn't drill at Schoona, so they drilled at Shovel Shovelnose instead, which had already been logged. So there was, there was no trees to burn, basically. Uh, but they've, they've got a lot of great projects that really straight-up great management team, very experienced, they should have raised more money late last year. Yours truly was bugging them too but they didn't. But they mm-hmm. did raise about 3 million bucks about a month ago. They've got enough money to drill probably another 15 or 20,000 meters. So, you know, there'll they'll be a little bit of a lull here after they finish these holes. They'll wait for a break up and they're just finishing permitting a much larger set of drill pads. And then mm-hmm. they'll be back at it doing a seen or 20,000-meter program in the summer with two drill rigs. So the timing to actually look at it now is actually quite good. It's a you're, good time. You're in this all right,
2: ball. all right, Eric, we're going to have to leave it go at that. We're out of time already. I okay. know you wanted to talk about another one, Northern Shield Resources, uh, six and a half cents. It's obviously a very early story. But all I can tell my it's listeners very is the best.
0: It's, very, very, it's another epithermal system. They found yep. it. Nobody knew it was there. Yep. Um, they're right on the top, so they're not going to generate exciting numbers. But what interests me is it does have golden service, and it's very big. The system is right. very, very limited.
2: Okay, well, the way for people to take advantage of, of this knowledge, Eric pulls together, and uh, it really is very valuable, I must say. I, I always try to listen to Eric as much as I can when we go to these shows. But you can uh, you, you can take advantage of that by subscribing to his service. Uh, it's HRA. Uh, it's uh, uh, Eric Coffin's Advisors. HR, yeah, right? It's the place to go. Advisory, yeah. Advisory All right. Well, uh, yeah. just uh, uh, check it, check it out, and uh, go there and, and sign up for Eric's letter. Uh, there's lots and lots of good stuff. He works very hard and has a lot of experience in this sector and uh, very valuable. Thank you, Eric, for being with me again, and uh, we have to do it more often. Thanks, thanks for being with us today. Sure. Thanks for inviting me, Jay. Alrighty, Well, folks, uh, we do have to go to break, but don't go away. Jeff Deist is going to be with me, um, former chief of staff to Ron Paul, now the president of the Mises Institute. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Jeff Deist.
4: A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow klondikegoldcorp.com. Oren Resources is a copper gold exploration company pursuing the world's next major discoveries. It has seven projects, including two active flagships, Committee Bay in northern Canada and Sombrero in southern Peru. This summer will be one of the most exciting times in Oren's history as the company turns the drill at Sombrero for the first time ever. The project's impressive surface results have identified Sombrero as an analog to one of Peru's biggest mines. Oren is also implementing cutting-edge machine learning technology to unlock its highly prospective gold belt at Committee Bay. Visit OrenResources.com and subscribe to keep up with the company's busy year ahead.
0: Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business.
1: You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have Jeff Dice with me once again. Jeff is the president of the Mises Institute, and it's an educational organization dedicated to promoting Austrian economic economics, freedom, and peace, and uh, of course, Jeff previously worked as a longtime advisor and chief of staff to Congressman Ron Paul. Uh, he has a background as a tax attorney uh, representing high net worth individuals, partnerships, and corporations. Uh, and, um, his uh, tax career includes uh, time in uh, two two different big four accounting firms, and uh, I think uh, Jeff is actually enjoying himself more now at the Mises Institute, uh, where, um, well, I just think uh, life is a little better for various reasons, and I think he's doing what he really enjoys. And if he, if you're fortunate enough to be able to earn a living doing what you love to do, there's not it doesn't get any better than that. Jeff, thanks for joining me again.
5: Hey, Jay, it's great to talk to you.
2: Always great to uh, hear from you. Uh, it isn't often enough, as far as I'm concerned. There's just um, no way we can be more places than one at a given time. So, um, you know, I wanted your article recently that you wrote at the Mises Institute Ray Dalio's Hollow Lament was the name of the article. And, you know, my son Scott, uh, he's seeking to make his way in the investment world, and he's been sort of enchanted by Ray Dalio. Uh, he had read some of his books, and I guess maybe more than anything, because Dalio has made so much money, he finds uh, Dalio somebody he'd like to understand and probably emulate. Um, so I'm not sure to what extent uh, I did point out your article to Scott. I'm not sure; I haven't had a chance to find out yet if he's read if he's read it. Uh, but let's—I've titled today's show: Why do rich capitalists suggest the destruction of capitalism? It seems to be something that some of these guys like. Dalio or Buffett or you know some of these guys, these billionaire guys, they get really, really rich, and then all of a sudden they turn into bleeding heart liberals. Um, so, what do you? How do you account for that, Jeff?
5: I guess the short answer would be to say they've got theirs. <laughs> in, in other words, people need to understand the diminishing marginal utility of money. Mm-hmm. if you're very, very wealthy, you're spending a tiny fraction of your income and wealth on basic necessities like housing and food. And, mm-hmm. and also, if you're fantastically wealthy, you're not all that much worried about your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You've got mm-hmm. plenty of money to set mm-hmm. them up and secure their future and pay for college and housing and, and all kinds of nice things. And so, if you're a billionaire just a just a single billionaire, not a deca or centa billionaire like some of these guys. Well, I don't know if we have centa billionaires, but we have deca billionaires. <laughs> if you just have a single billion, and you lose ninety percent of all your income and wealth to some sort of government retribu- redistribution scheme, well, you've still got a hundred million dollars. You're, right. you're still a financial elite. You're still quite set. Whereas the the poor average Joe with four hundred dollars in his checking account. Uh, is utterly dependent on his next paycheck for, for immediate basics and necessities like rent and food and gasoline in the car to get to work and that sort of thing. Now, of course, there's a lot of degrees in between that. Let's say a, 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 someone's fortunate enough to have twenty or forty or $50,000 in the bank. Well, mm-hmm. the loss of a job would not be an immediate catastrophe for that person. But nonetheless, the loss of 90% of their, of their worth would, would make them uh, basically dependent on, on government and, and mm-hmm. their employers. So that's really the difference. It's all about diminishing marginal utility of money. And so when you reach a critical mass, which I would add all of these gentlemen did under our current tax and regulatory system, uh, in, it's interesting to me that they would now change that tax and regulatory system in a way that would prevent a lot of other people from ever becoming as successful as they were. And so I, I'm struck by the fact Mr. Dalio here uh, in, in particular, who by all accounts, exceedingly brilliant super competent in his line of work would now turn around and give uh, or argue for giving more of his money to government or to the public school system where he lives, where he's making a big donation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, organizations that, unlike the businesses he bought and sold and turned around, have no accountability, no share price, no investors, no skin in the game, uh, but are just bureaucratic monoliths that exist in perpetuity and have the police state backing them up. Uh, So... It's it's what I what I termed his uh, latest writings a hollow lament. I meant to say that he's being hypocritical, that he's no. being tone deaf, that his his problems are not our problems, and I'm not interested in a rich guy's argument for big government.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you you know it may keep a lot of people from succeeding. I mean, not a lot, but keeping other people from achieving that level of wealth. But my concern, Jeff, is more on the middle class and what this sort of ta- – because it seems as though whenever we have taxes that are raised, the, the big guys don't even pay that many taxes necessarily. They find ways to – you know, ways within the law to, uh, to avoid paying as many taxes. But even if they did, as you point out, in that case, in the case of Dalio, he's so filthy rich that if he lost 90 percent, he's still very, very rich and uh, no problem. I mean, if he wants to – so you're saying he's giving some money to the local schools in Connecticut or wherever he lives. I think it's Connecticut. Right. So he can give – I mean, he can take his own money and give it away. That's – help others. God bless him for that, I think. I mean, my way of thinking is, um, you know, let me, Jay Taylor, do with what the excesses I have to take care, first of all, of my family, my own family, and then maybe the neighbors that I love and care for. Or people around me that I that my life that my life touches that I care about that I know, uh, but put a gun to my head and tell me to send money to government, which wastes most of it anyway, and then find a little trickles down to some needy people somewhere. Uh, it's just you know it's just it just it infuriates me. And I think most people who think about it, easy enough to give uh, to give other people's money away, right? So. Now, Can you talk a little bit about how and why capitalism needs to be reformed? That was the article that Dalio wrote. Essentially, can you go over some of the points and how, does, how is he specifically, what are the policies that he would put in place to make the world uh, a perfect place?
5: Well, that's just it. The policies or ideas he outlines are so incredibly vague and so derivative and so unoriginal. I'm I'm shocked yeah. by a guy as bright as him. He's he's lived in, in the performance world for so long. He doesn't know how to 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 adjust to the non-performance world of government. It appears, but he is full of vagaries. This article says, "Well, we need better leadership." Well, really, we need people who are better at government. I, I'm not sure that's the case. And he says, "Well, we need more bipartisanship." okay, well, we haven't gotten that, though, over the last 30 or 40 years. And then mm-hmm. he starts talking about metrics, which, of course, don't exist in government. They exist in in spades in the capital markets and, and private businesses where people actually lose money and lose their shirts. And, and then, of course, he has some very bland recommendations for redistributing income and wealth. But my question here is, again – this tax system he he now purports to advocate, which presumably involves higher rates, You know what would have happened if that had been in place for the last 30 or 40 years? People mm-hmm. like him, uh, rich people generally get rich off of capital gains. In other words, they right. buy and sell things, and capital gains have historically in the United States been taxed at a lower percentage, a lower level than ordinary earned income, the average mm-hmm. guy making a paycheck. And so if all along... Uh, Ray Dalio and and his funds had been taxed at 70%, let's say, instead of 15% on all the the buying and selling gains they'd made over the years. Perhaps he would never have achieved a critical mass of wealth. That would enable him to today be a benefactor. Maybe mm-hmm. he'd just be like the uh, you know the, the somewhat well-to-do businessman who makes four hundred thousand dollars a year and flies first class mm-hmm. uh, instead of being a billionaire who owns airplanes and companies. Yeah. So it, it's it's hard to say. And again, it smacks of this idea that like, well, now that I'm fabulously wealthy, let's uh, throw some impediments in other people's way. When, yeah. when in fact. I, I, you know, it's good that he's wealthy, uh, but by, yeah. by all accounts, he wasn't, he he didn't earn his wealth illicitly or harmfully, and now he can uh, give it away. I, I think that's mm-hmm. fine, but I I don't want to hear him uh, chastising people like me who argue for lower taxes for, how about on that mom and pop who own a couple of dry cleaners or restaurants and have a, a $2 million net worth? How about we, we lower their tax burden so they can, you know, uh, be, become set for life? How about them?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, even if he doesn't give his capital away, uh, if we had functioning markets, if, if we had functioning markets, if capital were allowed to be, uh, if, if price discovery were allowed for capital, which I would argue it is not now, um, then Dalio's money would be going to work somewhere in, in capital as capital that would be used to create more research and development, more jobs, more more. More wealth, essentially, more wealth creating activities. Um, but I guess maybe one of the problems that we're having, I believe, and I, I'm sh- quite sure you'll agree with me, is that we don't have price discovery because of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve has has really not allowed us to price capital. Um, is that? I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that I don't think. I don't. Know, maybe Dalio would touch on that. That sort of thing. I don't know. But. We always hear the the liberals talking about this redistribution of government has to get in to fix things instead of going back to, um, uh, to the basics like let's get back to free markets so that scarce resources can be allocated efficiently. Uh, let me ask you this, Jeff. How do you think uh, – how would Ron Paul, your ex-boss, or any number of economists or you yourself propose – uh, fixing the problems that Dalio is suggesting need to be fixed?
5: Well, first and foremost, we would identify the single biggest driver of inequality is the Federal Reserve. I mean, mm-hmm. Dalio, to his credit, he does point out that the Fed, Fed policies have generally favored rich guys like him over over wages and workers. And, and mm-hmm. so he, he understands that, but he does not understand, or at least he doesn't admit, to the degree that his own wealth was driven by the Fed, that it was created by the Fed. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is a guy who probably would have been successful in any walk of life, Mm -hmm. in any endeavor, a brilliant, hard-charging guy. I take nothing away from him. Mm -hmm. But the point is that interest rates have been so artificially low for so long that hedge funds like his have been borrowing money and buying companies with lots and lots of leverage to not too much equity. So this leverage buyout model uh, has made him very, very wealthy, probably fantastically uh, wealthier than he would have been without the Fed, without a, or basically a rigged monetary system. So it's, it's made him rich, maybe so rich, that it makes him, him blind to it. So the, the, the number one thing we could do to create a, a more level playing field is to, as you said, allow price discovery. Because the whole idea of hedge funds is to allocate capital to better and higher uses. If a company's underperforming, but it has value, the, the idea of a hedge fund is to go in there, buy that company out, replace the management, uh, shake things up, and 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 turn it around. And, and I would argue that that is a noble and useful mm-hmm. uh, activity for capital in society, something that trickles down and helps everyone. But yes. The, the, but the, the manner in which Dalio and other hedge fund managers have been able to do this with cheap money, almost house money, has has dramatically misaligned things. It's distorted things. It's it's made a lot of businesses look good on paper when in fact they don't work in reality. And and it's made people. Uh, maybe it hasn't created a class of undeserving rich, but it's made a class of rich people richer than they would have been.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you point out, Dalio probably could have been successful at anything, uh, but with cheap money, with the easy money, much too much of it flying around, distorting. The markets, obviously, it's bidding resources, intellectual resources like Dalio and others. And I've known personally people. Uh, Chen, Lin, Chen Lin, who's a friend of mine, for example, uh, could have gone to, uh, to Princeton in an aeronautical program, aeronautical engineering program, uh, to get his PhD, but he was making so much money in the equity markets that he said, I'm not going to do that. I, I've, I've learned to know other people, too, hedge fund managers and the like, who haven't done things that might have been more directly beneficial to humankind uh, but if those assets or those resources get bit away by a distorted capital markets then it then we're all poorer for it in the long run although some people maybe end up uh, lining their pockets more more uh, considerably more than they would have otherwise well Jeff let me ask you um, and for people who want to keep track of what's going on at the Mises Institute and listen you have a lot of great programs on there. Uh, you host something every week, I think is it called, uh, is it, it's, it used to be Mises Weekends, I think you're calling it um, something different now, is it? It's, uh, called
5: the, it's called the Human Action Podcast, yes, it's, yeah, a, it's after, an in-depth, in-depth uh, dive into Austrian economics and, and current events, so we're, we're trying to apply principle and uh, academic structure to uh, what's happening in the real world.
2: Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's that's really good, and I, I need to start paying more attention to what you're doing. You do have economists on there. I saw recently, uh, actually, I think it was uh, towards the end of last year, you had uh, Daniel Lacalle. Is that how you pronounce his yeah, name? Yeah,
5: Daniel Lacalle, great Spanish uh, uh, economist who's uh, really really active in Europe.
2: And this would still be available on your website. Uh, the biggest bubble of all was a was a show that you had a discussion that you had with him back in October. Of 2018, uh, essentially, could you sort of summarize what his thesis is?
5: Well, his thesis is that the uh, the, the scariest bubble out there is corporate debt, mm-hmm. and that the American public and the the Western public and that the investing public hasn't quite yet. Uh, recognize this, and thus it's perhaps not already priced in to some of these exuberant market valuations we've seen over the past few years, and that uh, people need to understand that the debt problems at the ha- household and individual level, at the business and corporate level, and at the government governmental level have all gotten worse, not better, since 2008 and the crash. Uh, so it was a very interesting and, and sobering discussion of how much corporate debt is out there sloshing around, and yet uh, for, for a lot of companies, it still continues to trade at uh, pretty low interest rates. I do see mm-hmm. that Netflix, uh, which is a company that makes no money and has a, a, an unholy amount of debt, is now uh, starting to be bid up on its bond debt, almost not, not into the- a Junk bond territory yet, but it's getting up into that seven ish percent range so mm. there's uh, there's risk there's money to be made perhaps with great risk out there uh, but it's it's interesting to me to see i don't know if we still use the term blue chip, but to see a dominant u s company like Netflix, which is in millions and millions and millions of houses all across the country, uh, nonetheless struggle to make money and fi- and finds itself uh, in a precipitous situation, having to issue uh, more and more corporate debt at higher and higher
2: rates. It's uh, mises.org. M i s e s .org is a place that uh, our listeners should go to. Uh, there's just an awful lot of uh, material there. A lot of um, a, a lot of articles, and also a, a weekly. Uh, Jeff, you host this weekly uh, this week this weekly podcast that that is excellent. Um, there's some of the others that I saw that really look interesting. Why socialism persists? Uh, this is one that I think you did on your own. Um, why does it persist? I mean, here we have you know, example after example of how socialism always seems to end up in poverty for the masses. There may be a, a small number of people who get filthy rich, but the rest always suffer. And, and yet, we just keep going back to it again. What What is it about the human species that causes us to do the same thing over and over again and never learn from the past? And then specifically with regard to socialism.
5: Isn't that interesting because people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are thought of to bring new ideas to Congress when, in yeah. fact, your ideas are ancient uh, and they've been thoroughly disproven both in theory and in practice. Uh, Ludwig von Mises literally wrote the book on socialism by that same title in 1922, which is just a, a, an absolute demolition of the economic program of central planning. So I, I think the short answer is that there, there is an element of human nature that likes something for nothing. And, and of course, it, it's hard for people to understand because it's only in government and economics where we find that oftentimes doing nothing beats doing something. Mm-hmm. And I think as humans, we're hardwired to prefer action over for, forbearance. And I think that psychologically, uh, intellectually, the, the idea of, you know something beats nothing, the idea that someone has a program or a plan uh, always sounds good to us. It sounds activist, like we're doing something to improve the world, even if it's making it worse, in, in effect, because we, we have this idea that, you know, that we have to act. And in almost every walk of life- other than politics and government and economics and almost every other walk of life, you know, action beats forbearance. Mm-hmm. Right? Being being proactive and doing things and planning sure. and plotting and working and striving. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is a good thing in in almost every human endeavor, but that's the last thing we need in our political and banking elites. And this is just very hard for people to come to grips with. They want government to do something about X, Y, and Z, and oftentimes the best thing for government to do is nothing, and mm-hmm. in fact, stop doing things altogether.
2: Well, somehow our founding fathers sort of had a had that inclination for sure. I'm wondering. Um, it's really. Uh, encouraging to me, and I wasn't quite aware that the Mises Institute was doing this, but you know, uh, obviously for intellectuals, for people who really care to understand economics and how economics really works—not the way they've been indoctrinated to think they work—but uh, Mises and the Austrian School of Economics—that's what your—that's what the Mises Institute is all about. I'm really encouraged to hear what I think I heard you say a little bit ago that. You're really, uh, your guests are really out there trying to connect the theory with the real world. Did I, do I have that right?
5: Right. That's, uh, that's really what economics is, is supposed to be about. It's supposed to help us understand the world. You could say that about all sciences, but it has failed to do so, I would argue, in the last 50 years or so. In other words, economics has gone astray, and we've lost it to uh, mathematics, to modeling, to statistics, to, to psychology, to a whole host of fields that aren't really economics at the end of the day. And, and what I fear is that not only are modern economists at places like the Fed and in the financial press you know not helping us better understand the world, they're actually misleading us. They're uh, helping us understand the world less, not mm-hmm. more, and, and mm-hmm. uh, they're not predicting anything Successfully, They're not modeling anything successfully. And for all their talk of empiricism against theory, uh, all the empiricism in the world didn't much help uh, anybody in 2008. So uh, w- I think we find ourselves in a time where economics is trying to reclaim itself and trying to reclaim its spot. Uh, as as a needed field, as a vital field, against all the uh, you know hyphenated studies and sociology and psychology, so uh, economics is is uh, is in a tough spot. And mm-hmm. I would say that uh, our our part of our goal is to help improve uh, what economics is out there and to to promote what we consider correct or sound economics.
2: Well, it's certainly uh, anybody that's taken the time to examine Mises uh, and Austrian economics, I think will will be able to see, unless they've been so thoroughly indoctrinated by Keynesianism and the other isms out there in the universities, uh, if they just, the common folks can understand Austrian economics to a great extent because it is so much in touch with the way the world really works, not the way somebody in academia thinks it should work. And it seems to me that what's happening more than anything is that this idea that I don't have to do anything, government will take care of me, uh, something for nothing, is really very regressive, and it causes societies to go down the tube. Uh, go down the tubes, it would seem. Jeff, uh, we're out of time. Want to thank you so much for being with us. I just wanted to mention there's so many other people there. Uh, Mises.org, and is it every Saturday? Every uh, you update it on the weekends, right? Your, Generally, your yes,
5: we do it. We do a, a human action podcast once a week. You can find it right. in, in uh, via YouTube or iTunes or Stitcher or a variety of outlets, and also you can find it at mises.org,
2: our website. That would be the best place to go. Jeffrey Herbener, uh, the theory of interest rates, March twenty eighth was one I looked at. Joe Salerno, who I'd like to get on my show sometime, Mises and nationalism, which would be a good good topic. I'd like to hear what Joe has to say. I didn't have time to listen to it. There's so many things there. So, folks, I hope that you'll go there uh, and familiarize yourself with the Mises uh, Institute. Thanks, Jeff, for being with us. We'll look to do it again sometime soon. Thank you, Jim. All right, folks, that's all the time we have. Next week, uh, David McIlvaney will be my guest, and um, Michael Oliver probably will be with me, and probably another guest to be named later. Until then, goodbye, and God's blessings to you.
4: StrikePoint Gold, trading under SKP on the TSX and STKXF on the OTC, has a market cap of under $10 million. StrikePoint is a new player in the Golden Triangle of BC and Canada. Focus will be on drilling the Willoughby Project in 2019. Prior drilling delivered over 20 meters of 25 grams per ton gold and 184 grams per ton silver. Recent receding glaciers have identified new gold targets. Neighboring projects have been acquired by StrikePoint's largest shareholder Ascot, Eric Sprott, and round out the other top shareholders.